Good morning again. I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 12. And in just a moment, I'll read verses 13 to 17. Just a, just a, a very brief word of introduction. Today's message is in many ways a, a reality check. It's the basics. Are you truly surrendered to God's claim on your life? Are you continually yielding your heart to God's authority, God's will, God's purpose for you and for your life. And so let's go ahead and read Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Holy Scripture says, And they sent to him, to Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is God's holy word, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, we pray that, that this word would have its way in our hearts and in our lives. Even this very morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit would shed light on the truth and how it ought to be lived out in our lives. Father, we pray that you would guard us from distractions and enable us to focus our eyes and our hearts upon you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, let's walk through the passage, and then we'll, we'll get to the, the punch of verse 17. Verse 13 begins, and they, they is almost certainly referring to the religious leaders that we have been learning about in uh, the past few passages in chapter 11, verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking a way to destroy Jesus. And then later on in chapter 11, verse 27, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to Jesus with a question. And of course, you'll remember that he didn't answer their question because they were not dealing truthfully and honestly with him. And then in chapter 12, Jesus began to speak to them, the same group of people, the religious leaders. And in the parable that we looked at last week, those, those unfaithful and unfruitful and wicked tenant farmers represented the religious leaders. And as we left off verse 12 last week, it says they were seeking to arrest him, but 
They weren't able to do it at that particular time because they were afraid of the crowds who were standing in awe of Jesus, and so they left him, end of verse 12. And then verse 13, and they. So these religious leaders now have, have gotten some other people to go on their behalf in order to catch Jesus in his words. The Pharisees, we've encountered the Pharisees before, they were deeply pious Jews who cared deeply about their, their identity, who cared deeply about the law, who cared deeply about, about keeping the law down to the very letter, and yet they had forgotten the spirit of the law, and their hearts were actually far from God. The Herodians, we don't know exactly who the Herodians were, but they were kind of identified by their political support for Herod, who was uh, a Roman official up in Galilee. We actually met the Pharisees and the Herodians back in chapter 3. You should look there for just a moment. In, in uh, chapter 3, Jesus went into the synagogue and he healed a man with a withered hand on a Sabbath day. And of course, from the Pharisees' perspective, that was a no-no. You can't do any work such as healing a man. You can't bring relief and restoration to a disabled man on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees had already gotten upset with Jesus because he was not, uh, not living and teaching according to their customs. And it says in chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So the, the Pharisees and Herodians up north in Galilee seeking to destroy Jesus. Now here in chapters 11 and 12, we're in Jerusalem, and the chief priests and the scribes and the, and the elders are seeking to destroy Jesus. So here are some, their allies, at least in their desire to bring ruin upon Jesus. And their motivation, it says in verse 13, is to trap Jesus in his talk. They're on the hunt, so to speak. And they want, they want Jesus to say something that can be interpreted as an inflammatory statement that they can use as ammunition against him. That's their motive. Verse 14, they came to Jesus and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now that is extreme flattery. Of course, it actually is true that, that Jesus is true. Jesus is faithful. Jesus doesn't teach in such a way as to... Uh, he, he's, not, he's not influenced by public opinion. He's not just taking a, a poll and seeing what will fly. Jesus is faithfully representing God no matter what the consequences are from the people who listen to him. They describe Jesus accurately, but they aren't, they aren't praising him in their hearts. They aren't really adoring and admiring the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in the Old Testament, talks about the, the, the man whose speech is as smooth as butter. But behold, drawn swords. And, and that's, that's what's going on here. Their, their, their speech is smooth and, and they're flattering him but they, they've come with swords to ruin him. And so they ask him a question. 
Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? They're trying to put Jesus into a dilemma. Because, in their thinking, if Jesus says that it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, to the Roman emperor, to the Roman empire, then that's not going to go over very well with the Jewish people. That, looks like a, a, that would look like a pro-Roman, anti-Jewish sentiment, and so they could use Jesus' statement to discredit him in, in the eyes of the ordinary Jewish people. On, on the other hand, if Jesus says it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then they can use that to discredit him with the Roman authorities. And in either case, they see this as an opportunity to gain ground and to get rid of Jesus. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Jesus is is not fooled. He, He knows what these men are up to. He knows that they are insincere, and they're really just coming with ill motive. He says, why put me to the test? That question never gets answered. Of course, we shouldn't come to Jesus in order to test him, prove him, tempt him, try to trip him up. We should come to him as humble learners, because he truly is the teacher and the Lord. He says, bring me a denarius. And let me look at it. A denarius was a, a Roman coin, and this, this tribute, this tax that is referenced in the question actually had to be paid in the form of a denarius. A denarius is understood to be a, a, a typical day's wage for a laborer. And Jesus asked them to bring a denarius and to let him look at it. And uh, he asks the question, now, I have, I have some uh, good old American currency uh, in my hand, uh, which I'll refer to uh, momentarily. I, I, actually, I actually saw an image of a, of a Roman denarius in one of, uh, one of my commentaries. And Jesus asks them in verse 16, whose likeness and inscription is this? Now, the, the, the Caesar, the the ruler, the emperor of the Roman Empire at this time was a man named Tiberius Caesar who ruled from about 14 A.D. to 37 A.D. Prior to Tiberius, uh, the Caesar was Caesar Augustus who was the emperor at the time of Jesus' birth. And uh, this, this particular denarius that they showed to Jesus could have been one that was issued by Caesar Augustus or it could have been one that was issued by the current Caesar, Tiberius Caesar. And if you look at uh, the denarius that, is, that was issued by Tiberius Caesar, on the front of it, there was an image of Tiberius. And then around that picture, there was an inscription, and the inscription said in abbreviated form, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So whose image and inscription is this on on the coinage? Caesar's. 
Now I have a quarter, a dime, a nickel, and a penny. And this is, this is very, very common. Boy, they've, they've been making coins for a very long time. We're not an empire the way that Rome was. We're a republic. But the basic, the basic principles are the same. You know, on, on all of these coins, you have an image of one of our past presidents. Washington, Roosevelt, Jefferson, and Lincoln. And on all of these coins, you have a number of different statements, uh, but the most important for our purposes is United States of America. So, th then and now, who, who has issued the currency? Who has issued the coinage? Who is, who is claiming to have sovereignty over the coinage? Well, the answer is obvious. Caesar, in the first century, Roman Empire, and the United States government in terms of the currency that we have today. And Jesus makes a very simple point from this. Since, since Caesar's image and inscription is on the coin, there's a very real sense in which it belongs to him. So, therefore, what does Jesus say? Verse 17, this is where we really get into Jesus' answer. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. This is a brilliant answer to their question. It's also a very general answer. It's, it's, uh, one author described it as an ambiguous answer, and it is. It's, it's, it's brilliant and ambiguous. And uh, I was reminded of a quote from George MacDonald, who said, to give truth to him who loves it not is but to give him more plentiful material for misinterpretation. Or we could add for misrepresentation or for malicious misuse. Don't, don't be naive. Jesus was very careful in how he answered questioners who had malicious intent toward him. He answered truly and honestly, but he, 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 he didn't give the answer with the kind of edge or the kind of bite that they wanted because he was dealing with people who hated him. And this is, this is one very common tactic that persecutors will use uh, against, against Christians. They'll try to trap us in our talk. They'll play nice. They'll flatter us. They'll, they'll appear to be on our side. But behold, drawn swords. Answer wisely. So Jesus' answer is, is very general. He doesn't actually spell out what precisely belongs to Caesar and the extent and limit of that. And he doesn't spell out what precisely belongs to God. He just gives this general principle. The things that belong to Caesar, render those things to him. The things that belong to God, render those things to him. And yet, with, with our Bibles open, Jesus is giving us a window into rich, rich theology and instruction. So I want to walk, walk through this, verse 17. We need to understand that the primary reason that we should render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's is because Jesus tells us to. 
right? The, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they were not disciples of Jesus, but we are. We, we are his disciples and followers. We, we regard him as our teacher and our Lord. He tells us to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And as we understand that Scripture teaches that God has given a very real measure of authority to the government, whether it's, whether it's a Caesar or whether it's a parliament and prime minister or a congress and president, God has given genuine, real authority to the, to the civil government. And in fact... Caesar's authority actually derives from God. Paul taught us this in Romans chapter 13, that every authority is from God. And God is the one who has established the authorities for our good. And so, when it comes to things like tax and tribute and obedience to just laws and honor, a disposition of honoring those who hold office. We are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But when we understand, this is where this passage gets so rich, when you understand the breadth and depth of God's claim on you, of what belongs to God, then you will realize how small Caesar's claim actually is. I've got 10 or 11 thoughts about how we can understand what belongs to God. 10 or 11 thoughts seems like a rather lengthy list, but we're going to go quickly. But what I want you to understand is the wide scope of what belongs to God and what we therefore owe Him. As we sang in the song, Victory in Jesus, all, all, all my love is due Him. That, that, that's the idea that we're going to understand here as we go along. So, number one, we can simply understand what belongs to God in, in the sense that everything belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God created everything, and He holds everything together, and He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Everything, including, including Caesar, including the government, everything belongs to God, and therefore we owe Him everything and ought to honor Him in every nook and cranny of our lives. But we can get more specific. I was, I was thinking about this instruction to render to God the things that are God's just in terms of what we've learned in Mark chapters 10 through 12. What did we, what did we learn in Mark chapter 10 verse 9? What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Who does marriage belong to? Your marriage belongs to God. Render to God the things that are God's. Or Mark chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus said to his wayward disciples, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Who does the kingdom of God belong to, ultimately? It belongs to God. And therefore, God sets the terms of 
what ministry looks like. The disciples shouldn't be running around trying to exclude people or throw cold water on people that God has welcomed and empowered to be part of His kingdom. God's kingdom belongs to God. And then in chapter 11, verse 17, Jesus goes into the temple and He overturns the tables and drives out the sellers. And then in verse 17 of chapter 11, He says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Who does the temple belong to? Who does, God, who does God's house belong to? To God. And then in the parable last week, there was a man who planted a vineyard. Who did the vineyard belong to? The vineyard owner. But how did the tenant farmers act? They acted as if, as if, as if it belonged to them. They did not render to the vineyard owner the the fruit and the profit and the produce that rightly belonged to the vineyard owner. They kept it for themselves. Render to God the things that are God's. But this, this, this concept of understanding what things belong to God can also be understood through the window that Jesus gives us in verse 16. Whose likeness and inscription is this? And so we begin thinking, okay, Caesar, Caesar has a legitimate realm of authority and he has placed his image and inscription in certain places, such as on the coinage, and that's an indicator of his authority and claim on us. Pay your taxes. But here's a question. Where has God placed his likeness and inscription? Where has God placed His image and His name? Where has God put the symbols of His authority? And that, that yields up several other additional insights to this passage. So, here, here, so, here, so just consider these, okay? Number one, God has put His image on you. You see, when you look, when you look at a coin, you are reminded of the authority and claim of the official government that issued the currency. You're reminded of their claim and their authority. When people look at you, they are supposed to be reminded of the authority and claim that God has on you. Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. You belong to God. You, you, you are not your own. You are not a self-creation project. The living God made you, and He made you to know Him and to reflect His character and to represent Him so that when others would look at you, they would get a window into the very likeness of God. Number two, 
God has made you either a male image bearer or a female image bearer. This is evident right in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 which says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God God has, has made you either a male image bearer or a female image bearer, and your maleness or your femaleness belongs to God. Render to God the things that are God's. And there's instruction in the Bible that pertains to all human beings, but there's some instruction that's particular to men, and there's other instruction that's particular to women. And we need to be faithful to offer up to God what is rightfully His. Number three, this just kind of unfolds right out of Genesis chapter 1. God intends, generally speaking, for most human beings, not all, but for most human beings, He intends for a a male image bearer and a female image bearer to come together in marriage and to display his character and his likeness in a very unique and special way. God has put his gospel and his message on marriage. Your marriage is designed to carry and shine forth his name his gospel, his message, Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. Husbands, you are supposed to show a little miniature picture of what it looked like for Jesus to lay down his life for his bride. And wives, you have a solemn calling to show the world what it looks like to respond to such self-giving love. Number four, still unfolding out of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, although actually I, I am borrowing this thought from Douglas Wilson. I've been listening uh, to a book by him on fatherhood, and he, he made a really good application of verse 17. I've already told you that God has put his image on you. Of course, the implication of that is that God has put his image on every human being, which, of course, means that there ought to be profound respect and love and honor that that we show towards all people. But the particular implication that Douglas Wilson drew out was this. God has put his image on your children. Your children do not belong to Caesar. Your children do not belong to the state. Your children do not ultimately even belong to you. They are a gift from the Lord and they are for the Lord. And you have a sacred, parents have a sacred obligation to do their very best in prayer and trusting God and His grace to present their children as offerings to the Lord. Number five, and I'm borrowing this one from another guy named James Voles. Where has God inscribed, okay, we're dealing with the concept of inscription, God's writing. Where has God inscribed His law? Not only in the pages of Holy Scripture, but according to Jeremiah chapter 31 and other passages, God has inscribed His law on the hearts of His believing people. 
Jeremiah chapter 31 says, God, God says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And this reality is what is experienced through the gospel. We read in Ephesians chapter 4 that when the gospel gets a hold of us, it causes us, Ephesians 4, 23 and 24, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You were created after the likeness of God originally, but we're all distorted and corrupted because of sin, and now God is recreating human beings after His likeness in true righteousness and holiness. Your redeemed heart answers to God alone. Your redeemed heart and all the obedience and sanctification that flows from it belongs to God. You know the truth. And you cannot pretend otherwise. Finally, number six, God has put His name on the church. In in the book of Numbers, the, the, the priests would stand before the people and bless them. The Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace and and. After that blessing, it says that in that way, you will put my name on the people. And when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, when people believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And as believers and as a believing community, as the church, the church of the living God, we bear the name of the triune God. God has placed His name, His authority, His ownership upon us. We, we, we will not render to Caesar the things that belong to God. And the church belongs to God. Colossians 3.17 tells us to do everything that we do in the name of Jesus. Which means that Everything we do is meant to reflect well on Jesus and to reveal His glorious and holy reputation to the world. Government, as important as it is, has a very small claim on your life. Government doesn't create people, doesn't save people, doesn't transform people's hearts, doesn't establish people in the truth, doesn't build loving communities. Government is not the creator, is not the redeemer, is not the Lord of the conscience, is not the bread of life, is not the hope of glory. At its best, government protects the nation from foreign aggressors and preserves law, order, and peace within its borders and lets Families and churches and small communities and small businesses grow and flourish with minimal regulation. At its worst, government authorizes the killing of God's image bearers before they are born, rejects God's claim on marriage, teaches God's young image bearers that they bear the image of naturalistic evolution, 
and that therefore they should live with all the confusion and cynicism and meaninglessness that befits their evolutionary origins, asserts itself as the answer to all of our problems, persecutes the people who seek to remain faithful as image bearers of God, and claims to have godlike authority as the ultimate provider, ultimate protector, and ultimate deliverer. Caesar has grand delusions. Every government, every pagan government is destined to crumble and its leaders destined to perish. Caesar Augustus, Tiberius Caesar, Presidents Washington, Roosevelt, Jefferson, and Lincoln have, all, have this in common. They're all dead. We worship the living God, the true, the true and eternal Father. We worship the risen Christ who lives forevermore. We worship the Holy Spirit, the giver of life. Now, I'm going to conclude this message. I'm going to speak a lot in the first person. But I want to encourage you to lay hold of this and to let, let your heart and soul feel the weight of what Jesus is teaching us here. The personal God of heaven and earth created me in His image and likeness. And though I was corrupted through Adam's sin and through my own sin, in love He sent His dear Son to die for me to shed His holy blood to cleanse me, to release me from the power of sin and death, and to reclaim me for His own. In Christ and in Christ's church, I have a destiny that Caesar did not give me and cannot take away from me. This destiny is to live in His hand as his handiwork in fellowship with him and his people to do the things that he planned for me to do before I ever took my first breath. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For his sake, 1 Peter chapter 2, for his sake, I will give Caesar, I will give government its small due because he tells me to. But make no mistake about it, I am not Caesar's. I am not my own. I was bought with a price. I belong to the living God. My heart is his. My life is in his hand. My marriage and children belong to him. This church, this pulpit, this ministry belongs to the living God. The depth of my surrender is far from perfect, but Jesus has shown me the way, and I will not turn away from it. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, small. Render to God the things that are God's. All your love is due him. Let us pray. Father, we covered a lot of ground, but the basic message is simple. We owe you everything. I pray that you would shine the light of your word upon our hearts and our lives so that we would be 
diligent to offer all that we are and all that we have up to you, that we would lose our life for Jesus' sake and for the gospels and find that in losing it for your sake, we discover true life and fullness of joy forevermore. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.